Would you please open your Bible to Matthew 19? Matthew 19, and we are going to continue our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. As you turn there, I want you to uh, consider for a moment uh, how we live in a world that is perpetually plagued by problems. Problems are all around us. But what I want us to consider is not so much the, the problems that might come to mind, but how we go about finding solutions to those problems. And generally, there's this idea, there's this pervasive sense that if we only have enough money or enough time or enough wisdom or enough energy, then we're going to be able to solve whatever problem we encounter. And so this this happens on on a macro level where you have a a pandemic that came upon us a couple years ago. And it's just, all right, if we throw enough money at this problem, we should be able to fix it. We should be able to solve every issue that we have. With inflation, if we just have the right financial strategy to go about this, we can get this in check and we're, we're going to be fine. All we need is the right, m- enough money, enough time, enough energy, enough wisdom, and we're going to be able to solve our problems. This even takes place with, with uh, the problem of aging, the perceived problem of aging. I just saw this headline the other day. Saudi Arabia plans to spend $1 billion a year discovering treatments to slow aging. So just throw the money at it. And then the article goes on to say this. It starts, anyone who has more money than they know what to do with eventually tries to cure aging. So they point to uh, Google founder Larry Page. He's tried it. Uh, Jeff Bezos, Amazon, he's tried it. Tech billionaires Larry Ellison and Peter Thiel, they've tried it. Now the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which has about as much money as all of them put together, is going to try it. The Saudi royal family has started a not-for-profit organization that plans to spend up to a billion dollars a year of its oil wealth supporting the basic research on the biology of aging and finding ways to extend the number of years people live in good health. Uh, The organization's CEO is quoted as saying, Our primary goal is to extend the period of healthy lifespan. There is not a bigger medical problem on the planet than this one. So we just need to throw the money on it. And if we have enough time, we'll be able to solve this problem of aging. Uh, This also takes place in in cancer research. Uh, The National Cancer Institute, their budget yearly is $5 billion. And that doesn't include all all the pharmaceutical and medical companies that also put money into cancer research. It's estimated there's about $50 billion that they would put into cancer research every year. This also plays out in how we think about power, so in in how we think about health and health care and life, but in in power. And uh, our our headlines are typically uh, captivated by one man in particular, and that's Elon Musk. And uh, actually, it was in the fall of last year, there was a, some articles started to come out about Elon Musk was the richest man in the world, over $300 billion that he was valued at, and uh, started asking the question, like, what could Elon Musk buy? And they, they said that, well, if he was a country, or if he wanted to, he could buy every country but 42 in the world, because he's worth more than every country but 42 in the world. And he's number 43 on the GDP list. Crazy. Or he could buy every professional sports team that exists. He has that kind of money. And then these ideas must have gone to his head because just a few months ago he said, let me put $44 billion and I'll buy Twitter. If we just throw the right resources at a problem, we can make everything all right. This is the, the 
assumption of our society, even our own personal health on a micro level. I mean, if just this, do this diet for 30 days and you're going to feel much better about yourself. Or do this workout program for 90 days and we will guarantee the results. We just need the time, the energy. We can solve our own problems. There's this prevailing presumption of our own ability to accomplish or obtain anything we want. So if we just have that, the time, the money, the wisdom, the energy, we can and we will make it happen. But this is a false gospel. This is a false path to solving problems, a false, false path to salvation. But this is not just a modern false gospel. This is not just an American idea. This is an idea that we see come up in Matthew 19. And just after welcoming little children and telling his disciples about the necessity of entering the kingdom of God with the, the dependence of a child, with gospel humility, a man who has wealth and youth and power approaches Jesus. And what we're going to see in our, in our text is we're going to see three gospels presented. And the first one is this, the false gospel of performance. Number one, the false gospel of performance. Look at verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all, all relate this story. And Luke describes this man as a ruler, someone with considerable power. And later we're going to see this man is also young and wealthy. And Mark tells us that this man ran up and knelt before Jesus. Now it must have been a remarkable scene. And surely it was clear that of the kind of man this was because he comes to Jesus eagerly and in this posture of humility. This man seemed to have everything one could want. He was young and he, rich, he was rich and he had authority and he was honorable. He did good deeds. And his question seems to be the right question, directed to the right person. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now this desire, is, desire for eternal life is right and good. In Ecclesiastes, the Lord says that he has put eternity into the hearts of men. There's nothing more important, nothing better for us than eternal life. I always remember Randy Alcorn, he's speaking of living in light of eternity, and he described time as this line that stretches out forever in one direction and forever in the other direction. And your life is just one dot on this line. And he, and he asked the question, what are you living for, the dot or the line? So this man sees, he, he conceives of something of the importance of, of eternity. So what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He's got this eternal perspective. What good deed must I do to ensure that I'm in a good place? This man comes to Jesus and he desires good. And he wants to do good. He's asking Jesus to direct him, to tell him what he must do to gain life. If there was ever anyone who could get this eternal life, surely it was this young, rich, powerful young man. But this is where his problem begins. He thinks that life, that eternal life, is something that he can acquire. Something that he can earn. If he just does a little more, if he just does the right thing, then it can be his. I think this is where, where 
many, particularly in our, in our cultural context, are. If I just do the right thing, I can be saved. If I'm, if I'm a good person, and it's kind of an arbitrary measure of good, if I'm a good person, then I will go to heaven. But look at Jesus' response. Instead of correcting the man right away, he adjusts his perspective. Look at verse 17. And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Jesus is telling man, the man that, the, that only God declares what is good. Only God can make clear the path to eternal life. And that path is determined by God's word. So Jesus says, keep the commandments. And Jesus is not making a statement necessarily about himself. He's only directing the man to God in his revelation. Certainly, Jesus is the only one who is good. But Jesus wants the man to see that good is only defined by God. And in fact, has already been defined by God in his law. And I think this is an important thing for us to, to remember because we tend to think of the idea of law as this kind of source of judgment. It's the, it's the measuring stick that we can't quite live up to. It's the standard that we can't meet. So we start to think of God's law as, as kind of a necessary evil, something that's not so good. But here Jesus makes clear that when we want to consider what is good, look where Jesus goes. We're to look to God's law. I heard one theologian say this about God's law. God's law is not an arbitrary set of statutes managed by some divine magistrate. God's law is best thought of as God's personal presence. It's God's gift of himself in which he comes to his people in fellowship and sets before them his will for human life. That's what God's doing in God's law. This is God's will for human life. God's law calls us to be what we have been made and redeemed to be. That's what God's law does. It calls us to be what we have been made and redeemed to be. So Jesus tells the man, keep the commands. This is also why the Psalms are filled with declarations about loving God's law, because God's law is good. So if you want to know what is good, as the man asks, look to God's law and obey God's law. So then the man asks, logical question, verse 18, which ones? Now, I would kind of expect Jesus to just say, all of them, right? I mean, that's how I would respond. Which ones? Oh, all of them. If my kid is disobedient, one of my children is disobedient, and uh, they ask me, what, what do I need to do to be a good kid? And, well, obey me. And, well, I mean, like, which times should I obey you? Which commands should I obey? Well, actually, all of them. Everything that I say you should obey. That's what I would expect. But that's not how Jesus responds. Look at verses 18 and 19. The man said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus does not tell the man anything that he hasn't heard before. He doesn't tell him anything new. Instead, Jesus points him back to what was at the very center of a Jewish man's life, the Ten Commandments. But notice that Jesus doesn't give him Ten Commandments, right? He only gives him a partial list. 
So instead of saying just obey all the commands, Jesus just gives them half of the commands. Why only half? Like, what's, what's wrong with the rest of the commands? Well, nothing is wrong with the rest of the commands, but Jesus wants to hold up the mirror of God's word to this man, and he wants this man to consider his love for others. And we see this in how Jesus ends by quoting the command from Leviticus 19.18, which is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This entire list of commands has to do with loving other people. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Love others. But look how the man responds. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story, it's, I think, pretty shocking. Look at verse 20. The young man said to him, and this is the first time Matthew highlights him as a young man. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? I, did you get that? I've, I've done it all. I'm good. The man responds to Jesus and says, Yeah, I got it figured out. I'm done. I've done all that. What else do I have to do? There's this acknowledgement in the, in the man's follow-up question that he still needs something else. What do I still lack? He knows that his obedience, his goodness, his, his, all his performance was not enough. So he asks, what do I still lack? And in response, Jesus uses his words to cut to the heart of the man and to expose his, his true problem. He doesn't confront the man, but calls him to give evidence of his devotion. You see, his performance was not enough. The false gospel performance could not save him. But not only did this man believe that it could, and then he found it lacking, he also believed, number two, the false gospel of possessions. The false gospel of possessions. Look at what Jesus says in verse 21. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When Jesus had given the man the list of commands he must follow, Jesus left off the last of the Ten Commandments, which also has to do with loving others. You shall not covet. Now this also, it had to do with loving others, so it's kind of weird that Jesus didn't include it. This command speaks to our, our craving for more, our envy of what other people have, our deep desire to get whatever we want. Why does Jesus leave this off? Well, he left this, this command not to covet off because this is the very command that Jesus wanted to use to confront this young rich man. You see, the, the rich man knew he needed more, he wanted more, he coveted more, and he thought it was something he could simply acquire. The more that he needed, the eternal life that he was looking for, he thought it was something that he could just acquire. There was something he could say or do to add eternal life to all that he already had. But the man didn't need to add anything to his life. He thought he needed something to possess. But he didn't need anything to possess. What he needed was to be made like a child. What he needed was an attitude of childlike dependence, of poverty in spirit, not self-confidence. Jesus uses his response to show the man that what the Lord requires 
is total devotion to God, total dependence upon Him. What the Lord requires is a heart that's not set on riches or power or energy or security, but a heart that is set only on Him. And Jesus puts His finger on this when He tells the man to sell his possessions and give to the poor. Jesus is not saying that this will save the man. This is not a universal command. This is the only time that Jesus actually tells someone to go and sell all that they have. But what Jesus is saying is that what God requires is this complete devotion to himself. To have eternal life, the man's heart must not belong to his possessions, but to God himself. True love for God puts every lesser love in its proper place. True love for God puts every lesser love in its proper place. So Jesus calls this man to a love that transcends his love for stuff. He calls him to a love for others that goes far beyond what he has. But much more than that, Jesus calls this man to love God more than everything else. So he says, follow me. This is what Jesus calls this man to, and this is what we are all called to. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not part of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now for me, growing up in the church as as a young man, as the son of a pastor, I like the idea that, you, you know, like God is good and I get that I should follow Him. But I like this other stuff too. And I think the world has something for me. I think all these possessions out there, there's something for me in that. And I wrestled with that for a long, long time. Because I, w- I didn't want to give God all of me. And sadly, this r- rich young man, who thought he had everything, let's see how he responds in, look, in verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. Instead of seeing all of the good in God, instead of receiving the eternal life that God holds out to all who believe, this man leaves Jesus and he goes away sorrowful. And Matthew only gives us one reason why this man went away. It was his great possessions. So when this man counted the costs of following Jesus, he concluded that that cost was just too high. This is like what Jesus described earlier in the parable of the sower. He said, some seed was sown among thorns, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. As this man walks away from Jesus sorrowful, we can see these thorns choking the word. This man being strangled by his love for money. This man did have a desire to follow Jesus. That's why he came to him in the first place. And as Mark described, ran, ran up to him and knelt before him. He sees some good in Jesus. But he wanted to follow Jesus as long as he could bring all of his stuff with him. But to enter the kingdom of God requires not great possessions, but poverty in spirit. It requires not confidence and ability, but childlike humility. And after the man departs, Jesus turns to instruct his disciples. Look at verses 23 and 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, 
Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. These are sobering words. These are are piercing words. Because I would prefer to read these words and think, eh, they don't really apply to me. They can't apply to me. I like to think that Jesus gives these words for Elon Musk and Bill Gates. Not for you and me today. But we must hold up the mirror of God's word to ourselves, even if it's uncomfortable. Even if it exposes things that we'd rather not know about. That's what God's word, it's, it's this... It's meant to be this mirror that we, we hold up to see clearly who we are. And Jesus says that it is only with great difficulty that a rich person will enter the kingdom of heaven. In Greek, the meaning is actually no different than what the English says here. If you are rich, if you have much, it is hard to follow Jesus. Perhaps you don't think of yourself as one who has much. And as inflation rises and it seems we stand on the brink of recession, perhaps you're far more aware of what you don't have. Just this morning I was looking at the uh, Wall Street Journal homepage and, and it's the headline, I mean the top article is about inflation rising and then it quotes this guy saying, perhaps I shouldn't have bought that bag of chips. And, and just how deep this cuts. But despite the headlines today, Despite the, guy, this, the fact this guy is doubting whether he should have bought the bag of chips with his lunch, we as Americans face unprecedented prosperity. According to recent data, if you make $50,000 a year, $50,000 a year, which is not going to get you very far in this area, you are in the top 0.3% of the world's population. That means you, you earn more than 99.7% of the world's population. In fact, if you earn just $2,000 in a year, just $2,000 in a year, you earn more than 50% of the rest of the world. In relation to most people who have ever lived throughout human history, we are ridiculously rich. This is evident even as we sit here this morning. So the clothes that we wear, the cars that are sitting in the parking lot, the homes that we woke up in with their working toilets and showers, hopefully, their well-stocked refrigerators and pantries, our air conditioning, our antibiotics, all of these things give evidence of our tremendous wealth. But we are also often aware of those who are richer than us. So we think of neighbors and coworkers, and they have more. Friends and family, they have more. And when we're honest, we think about this because we'd also like to have more. We covet. We tend to think that if we had just a little bit more, things would be easier. If we had a little bit more, then maybe we'd have a little less problems. We think more is better, especially when it comes to money. We think that if you are privileged, then you will be rich. This is the the false gospel of possessions. But this is not how Jesus speaks about wealth or money here or anywhere else. In fact, in the gospels, Jesus doesn't have anything positive ever to say about money, about being rich. He never says that if you are rich, then you are blessed. Or if you are blessed, then you are rich. He never says that if you are rich, then it is easier to follow me, easier to know me, easier to trust me. But I think this is often functionally how we think. 
So we, we, we may not say this ever, but we think things like, if I had more, then I'd be able to help those in need. Or if I had more, then I'd be able to give more. Or if I had more, then I'd really be able to use my time to serve others. Or if I had more, then I'd be able to work a little less and spend a little more time in God's Word. But I don't have enough, so I've got I've, I've to get back to work. I've got to get to work right now. We think more will be better for us. But as one commentator said, nothing fattens the camel like an abundance of worldly goods. Nothing fattens the camel like an abundance of worldly goods. As Jesus says here that it is easier for a camel, or you might think about a giraffe or an elephant. Jesus uses a camel because that was the biggest animal that most people knew of at that time. It's easier for a camel to squeeze through the little hole at the tip of a needle, a sewing needle. Easier for a camel to fit through there than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But wealth makes us fat. It makes us big. It makes us self-reliant and self-indulgent. It makes us self-confident and self-important. Pastor Doug O'Donnell writes, Wealth has a way of ruling one's life, ruling one's time, ruling one's vocation, ruling one's commitments, ruling one's concerns. Those who are ruled by money cannot be ruled by God. These are sobering words. They're shocking words. And we should be shocked by them because I think it hits pretty close to home with the abundance that we live, that we live in. We have so much. We are rich people. And if we are ruled by our money, we cannot be ruled by God. You cannot serve God and money. And what Jesus is calling this man too, is not what he universally calls all people to. We are not all just to give all that we have away and have nothing. That's not what God is calling us to. What he's calling us to is complete and total devotion to him. But we should be shocked by this. We should be sobered by this. And if this is shocking to you, and if you're feeling a little hopeless and discouraged and depressed... You're not the only one. Look how the disciples respond. Look at verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, which is shocked, taken aback, saying, who then can be saved? Who can be saved? If this man can't get in, how can anyone? If those who are rich and powerful and young, if they cannot enter the kingdom of God, what hope is there for the rest of us? If what we have, our possessions, can't earn salvation for us, if what we do, our performance, can't earn eternal life, then what hope do we have? Who then can be saved? And this brings us to our, our third point. We looked at the false gospel of performance, the false gospel of possessions, and now the true gospel of grace. Hear the wonderful words of Jesus in verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. Who then can be saved? With man this is impossible. But with God all things are possible. Thanks be to God. Here Jesus makes a stunning and devastating statement about all men, about every one of us. 
For us, salvation is impossible. For us, eternal life is out of reach. And it will always be out of reach. doesn't matter how many billions of dollars we throw out of it, at it, it's out of reach. For us, the doors of the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of God, they're closed off. We are all camels unable to fit through the eye of a needle. But what is impossible for us is possible for God. More than that, what God requires, He accomplishes in the coming of Jesus Christ. Salvation, eternal life, entrance into God's kingdom are always and only an accomplishment of God and His grace. It's not us in our performance, not us in our possessions, not us in our, our good intentions, but at every point, salvation is a result of the activity of God and the miracle of His grace. And this gift of grace is not something we earn if only we do enough. If only I do enough, then I, then I can get this gift of salvation. It's not something we choose if only we're smart enough. If only we acquire enough knowledge. It's not something we attain, obtain if only we have enough. It is always and only and completely of God. Salvation is undeserved and unmerited. It is of God, a gift of His grace. Because what is impossible with man has been made possible with and only in God. And brothers and sisters, for those who have in spirit work faith repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus for their, for their salvation, this is a precious gift and a glorious reward. And it's here that Peter speaks up. Of course he does. Peter speaks up. Look at verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So Peter is, is realizing, I mean, this guy, he's got all this stuff, and he won't give it up to follow Jesus. And then Peter's like, wait, hold on. That's what we did. Now, at first, Peter seems kind of self-interest, right? Like, what's in it for me? He recognizes that he and the other disciples, they're not like this rich young man. They have given up everything to follow Jesus. They have shown total devotion to Jesus. So Peter is asking, what does this mean for us? And rather than chiding and correcting Peter, rather than saying, stop thinking about yourself, Peter, or get behind me, Satan, Jesus uses Peter's words to bring comfort and blessing to those who take up their cross and follow him. This is really remarkable. Look at verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for My sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first, like this rich man, will be last, and the last, like Jesus' disciples, first. Now, it's difficult to say exactly what Jesus means by the 12 thrones and judging the 12 tribes and the hundredfold blessing. But Jesus' main point is crystal clear. In the new world, those who give up all to follow him will have a great blessing and great reward. That's Jesus' point. What a gift it is that we serve a God who is not domineering, 
a God who is not spiteful, a God who is not quick to anger. He says, take up your cross and follow me. And while we respond in repentance and faith and obedience, our, our efforts are so feeble and failing. Yet God is not a God who is quick to anger. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The grace that saves us is a grace that goes with us. We have a God who not only saves us in His going with us, He delights to give good gifts to us, including the gift of eternal life. God doesn't say, okay, I'll give you eternal life, and it's kind of begrudging, but, you know, life is going to be really hard for you from here on out. Your life is going to have to be lived under the burden of receiving such a great gift. No, no, God's grace is an infinite and inexhaustible grace. It is an ever-flowing fountain for our good and God's glory. His grace doesn't end when we are given the opportunity to follow Him and we follow Him. His grace is a grace that extends for all eternity. And so it is with gratefulness in our hearts that we respond by giving of ourselves to Him. You see, this, this young rich man, his, his identity was wrapped up in what he had done and in what he had. That was his identity. And he thought he was a pretty darn good guy. And Jesus says, no, unless you fully and completely and totally depend upon me, you have no hope for salvation. But what a glorious reward awaits those who do come to him in childlike humility in complete dependence, who look to Him alone for salvation, who look to Jesus alone as the only one who can pay for our sins, who can secure for us eternal life. And it is with gratefulness that we come to Him and it's with grateful and joyful hearts that we trust in Him. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, thank You for what You've accomplished for us in Jesus, in sending your Son. He is the only one who could do good, who was good, who is goodness himself. He obeyed where we have failed, and he obeyed to the point of death and took our place on the cross, fully paying for our sins, and by his wounds we have been healed. Lord, help us to turn away from those things to which we cling. Our possessions, our performance, help us to put to death our false affections, our false loves. Help us to love what you love. Help us to fix our minds and souls and affections on the truth and beauty that is you. Lord, let us seek no joy and no comfort except in you. May there be nothing we desire besides you. Lord, we are yours. Make us yours. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.